0: welcome to the men at work podcast episode number 12. i'm your host travis streb today we are talking to eric arthrell eric is a manager at doblin which is a human-centered design and innovation business that's part of deloitte Uh, the bigger story behind eric is he is the lead author on a new report called the design of everyday men so it's deloitte's perspective on men's roles in uh, society, family, and how they approach masculinity overall in a world where gender roles are rapidly changing. I think a deeper part of Eric's story is the fact that he is taking a uh, paternity leave right now to make sure that him and his wife can both be successful in their careers And really for him, this is about building a new skill around uh, contributing in a different way and being just an amazing father for his young daughter, who uh, luckily was napping during the entire episode. She was very kind to us. So in this episode, we talk a lot about the research that Eric and his team did, about the experience of men at work, about this idea of moving beyond just supporting women and actually looking at our, our behaviors as men and actually changing them. We look at this so-called ideal man, uh, the model that we have that's totally broken for what an ideal man looks like in society, at home and at work. At the end of the episode, I talked to Eric about what it means to become a more conscious father, more conscious parent and a more conscious man in society. I gotta tell you, Eric is an impressive, impressive man. He's done some really great work in the world. He's incredibly humble. And I know you're going to get a ton out of this episode. So let's dive into episode number 12. So, Eric, um, here we are. You're at home. You're taking care of your young daughter. And we're talking about men at work. So, yeah. it also so happens that yesterday, April 8th, your big report dropped, uh, The Design of Everyday Men. And I want to talk a lot about that report. I got a chance to read it yesterday and and this morning. But I'm curious, like, where did you come up with the idea for this? Like, how did you even think of this idea?
1: I think the report tells a really important story and and one that I've been personally living for the past few years. So so as you mentioned, um, where I currently sit is – uh, is at home with my daughter Elin um, and I'm on paternity leave for seven months and I'm into about month two of that. Rewind um, a few years ago um, when my wife and I, her name's Erin, when we were first thinking about having children, I was thinking really long and hard about the role that I wanted to play um, as a man in our relationship and and, and how I could, could continue to support her and her career and, and also... Um, just be a, a contributor to 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 gender equality, and I think that, like as we know, the world is changing. Default gender roles for men and women are are starting to disappear as 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 women become more liberated to experience all the advantages that men have traditionally held for for generations now. Um, and I, I think that traditionally we we've, we've approached men's involvement in this liberation as as allies to empowerment, and so. That means championing, mentoring, uh, sponsoring uh, women's success. And and I think that's incredibly positive work that we should continue to do. And and, and every man should count themselves as as an ally. But when I was thinking about the roles that I wanted to play, now that we were having a a child between Aaron and I, I experienced something that that allyship couldn't really fully address for me. Um, And so in my new life as a father-to-be, I knew that being a traditional financial provider like my father and his father before him, et cetera, would be of, of vital importance. But I also knew that emerging research was suggesting that um, taking on a caregiver role or household manager role or supporter to my spouse may be similar to what people's mothers take on or my mother take, took on and her mother before her, et cetera, was also going to be incredibly important. And really allyship didn't fully solve that, that tension for me. And so I believe that in a society to have gender equality, all people must feel enabled to take on the roles that that make sense for them and and find the balance that works for them. And and what this meant for me was actually changing what I found to be important as a man, how I was defining my manhood. And so it wouldn't be enough for me to simply put my head down, make money, send the paycheck back to my wife and kids. That wasn't gonna be enough. My wife has a a very important career and that that career is, is equal to mine. Um, so that means I'm going to have to do different things that maybe some men before me didn't do. And so I, I don't consider this allyship. I, I consider this active participation. And so what active participation means for me is, is starting to redefine what it means to be a man, redefining the roles that, that men take on. Um, and so this meant expanding not only what my wife can be uh, in her own, you know, uh, woman's empowerment, but it also means expanding what I can be as a man and taking on new roles that are maybe non-traditional. And so this was really the place that I was sitting in uh, about two and a half to three years ago, thinking, I'm looking around me within this corporate culture, and I, I'm seeing men and, and women show up at, at, at work the way they do. And I didn't understand why men uh, were showing up the way they were. I knew that the, the research was telling me that playing a caregiver role, being a household manager role, playing a, a supporter role was going to be incredibly important. And it was things that I really, really wanted to do really, really badly. Um, but I, I didn't see that that, that that happening as much. And so that was really the lens through which we created the design of Everyday Men Report. And Carolyn Lawrence, a colleague of mine who is the inclusion leader at Deloitte Canada and Deloitte Global, we teamed up and, and for, for for a couple of years, we were networking our butts off and talking to every, everyone that we could to try to get this report off the ground. And it became a reality and we did the research with it with a team of individuals um, to really understand the experience of men at work, the experience of men at home and, and men's relationships to masculinity and trying to understand how men are managing these changing gender roles and, and how workplace culture fits into um, to that change. And we launched the report April 8th, 2019. So super excited about that. And I think that there's some really important implications for business leaders on how to build inclusive high-performing cultures. So, I'm hoping people find it to be, to be novel in the sense that it's new information, um, but also find that it is um, something that is uh, additive and complementary to all the gender research that already exists out there. This is not a silver bullet, you know, one thing solves all report. This is a, a new perspective that is added on to all the perspectives, women's experiences primarily, that, 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 that we should also be focusing on. Um, and so it's just a, another voice um, in the gender equality conversation.
0: I think, you know, I, well, I know I pay attention to this research. It is certainly novel. I think it also takes a lot of courage to go out and, and do that research because there, are, I can't imagine what your pitch would have been to go out there and say, hey, we really want to go out and understand what's going on for men. And this has been a passion of mine as well because I actually believe that it's, it's an important voice. Not that men have been, um, you know, let's say, put, you know, pushed down or that they're experiencing you know, inequality challenges, but that, hey, men aren't super happy with the way things are going either. And there is a role beyond allyship, and a lot of it has to do with the way that uh, the world of work is working. And then outside in, in society, so I think it takes a lot of courage just to go after it and say, Hey, what are like, what's going on for men? Cause often when we're talking about in this case, let's say the, you know, the oppressor as it will, nobody really wants to know what that experience is. And I, I just want to applaud you for, for going out and putting the time in with Carolyn to go out and get the funding or whatever it was you were looking for to make the report happen. Now, when you went out and did the research though, I mean as much as you're a lead author on this you also as we talked about earlier you actually went out and did the research so you went out and met with a number of men like what was your uh what was the process to go out and find these men and figure out what their experiences was
1: yeah so um we we developed a framework so um uh i I work within doblin which is the human-centered design and innovation consultancy that sits within deloitte and what that means is we take um, a human-centered design-led approach to, to, to our work. Um, and within that umbrella, we use uh, specific research techniques, and, and one of them is ethnographic research. And so if you think of um, uh, like Dr. Jane Goodall go out and studying chimps in the forest, and, and what happens is, is these researchers that come from an, uh, an anthropology background will go and live in these cultures for a year, two years sometimes. And their goal is not to um, ask uh, probing yes or no questions. Their goal is to, is to observe. And, and, and through observation, you can make meaning of, of, of different experiences. Um, and so ethnographic research is, by definition, the study of culture. And its goal is to undercover meaning behind facts. And so that's the, the type of research that we specialize in within Dublin. Um, and uh, I come from more of a business strategy background. So that's one pillar of the, 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 the three-legged stool that, that holds up Doblin. The other two pillars are our um, are, are insight specialists. They tend to have a, a bit more of a research background to really understand people's experiences, specifically from social sciences, so like anthropology or sociology. And then the, the third leg of the stool is a design background. And so my, my colleagues... Minyashi and uh, Haley Kukine. Minya is from the insights background, and Haley is from the design background. Um, the three of us together really formed uh, the research team overall. Um, and so, what happened is that we we scanned the secondary research on the the topic of of men and gender and and workplaces, um, and really got uh, as as informed as we possibly could on on what are some areas that we could go deeper on. Again, ethnographic research is about finding meaning, so we wanted to go deeper on certain areas. And so we built a framework for ourselves around uh, what a man should be in society. So what does masculinity tells us, tell us that a man should be? Um, what the ideal worker looks like in the workplace? So this could be gender agnostic, but, but who, what does an ideal worker look like and what are those characteristics? And then the third piece of the puzzle was wh- what does the ideal, quote, family man look like? So when it comes to someone's home life, um, how do men show up within their family unit? And so we created this Venn diagram for ourselves just for visualization purposes of ideal worker, ideal man at home, ideal man in society as defined by masculinity. Um, and from that, we, we wanted to really uncover how are people managing, how are men managing these tensions? And so we, we put out an ask for, um, for a diversity of names um, from different corporations around the greater Toronto area. Um, And we think we had a a list of about 75 names that came back. Um, And uh, we tried to cover as as diverse a spectrum as we could. So people who are just starting their career, people who have been in the workforce for 30 or 40 years, approaching retirement, um, a range of uh, ethnicities. Um, We had uh, homosexual and heterosexual. We had people that were married, people that weren't married, people with kids, people without kids, people with older kids, people with younger kids. and uh, we, we screened, I think about, we screened about 40 people um, and then we made a final selection of 16 individuals that covered sort of the range of diversity requirements that we were looking for. And then uh, once we did that, um, our research process was uh, a, a two-hour in-depth interview, typically in someone's home. And so I participated in some of these and, and, and Minya and Haley um, took the, the primary lead on, on running these interviews. And so that meant going to someone's home, sitting in their living room with them typically, and then just having a conversation, a loosely structured conversation around what was it like to grow up as you? What, what was your family life like? Why did you choose the education that you did? Why did you choose the career that you did? What is it like working in at, your, at your work? What is it like being at home with you? Where do you see yourself going in the future? Um, and through these conversations, we got really honest, heartfelt responses from, from these men And uh, we paired that with observational research in the office and we'd follow them into their meetings, conference calls, commuting to and from work. Um, And so sometimes you're with someone for six hours throughout the day on top of the two hours that you interviewed them. Um, And so in the end, we had 67 hours of research, about 2,752 specific observations and and quotes that we analyzed. Um, And a big part of my role and and Minya's role was we get all all that information gets transcribed um, we put it into a system called uh, MaxQDA, which helps us listen to all the interviews, all the audio recordings, and start to parse out, okay, what is this person's experience? What are some of the beliefs they hold around around uh, their manhood? What are some of the behaviors that they're ga- engaging in um, because of those beliefs? And what are some of the feedback loops that they're getting based on that behavior that might inform their beliefs or inform their expectations for themselves? Um, and and from that we, we landed on on the four insight themes that, that exist in the report around um, men's experiences in the workplace, specifically working in an always on, always available workplace culture.
0: Yeah, it's I mean I, I read through that this morning. Um, yeah, well I think first of all I think it's um, it's I love the Jane Goodall reference, um, and it's a somewhat somewhat funny as well, just the fact that we've now talking about a woman who was observing apes. And now we're talking about a man coming out, observing other men in the, in the, <laughs> of the modern, yeah. modern, uh, greater Toronto area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I love that idea of like the ideal worker, the ideal man at home and the ideal man in society yeah. based on, on today's uh, norms. So you go out and you do all this research and you're talking to these men, you're spending hours with them, you know, driving, commuting, um, through Toronto traffic with them, going to work, going to meetings, what uh what was that like for you to go and do
1: yeah and so um i i i led i think i led one of the interviews but my primary role was listening to the the interview recordings afterwards and and hearing my colleagues minya and Haley uh tell me the stories of 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 these men and reading through their field notes and um i found it to be uh So me going through this process on my own as well, so having a child and, and entering into this new phase of life and thinking about where is my career going to go in the future, and then hearing these men talk about their own lives and their own careers. And I will say that it was, it was not necessarily an inspiring experience <laughs> uh, to hear these men talk about their career choices and why they chose these careers. And I'll just give a, a, a couple of examples that, that stick out to me. Um, and so, uh, one example of a, of a man who was, who is inc- incredibly successful in his career, um, you know, was leading a very large size of a, a very large department within his organization and to hear him talk about the, the constant insecurity that he's felt around his financial security throughout his whole life, even though I'm, I'm going to guess here, he's probably making seven figures. Um, or at least very high six figures, um, to hear him continuously talk about the insecurity around has he done enough ha- has he has he delivered enough on his financial responsibilities? Um, was almost disheartening like, like like sometimes you want to take these men and you just want to shake them and be like no you've done enough like you don't need to to keep pushing more and more and more you, you you've reached the pinnacle and and the 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 connection between what we would perceive as, as highly ambitious and that, that high ambition being driven by a sense of insecurity, specifically around financial insecurity. Um, I think th- this one man that I'm referring to specifically said he always felt um, uh, um, emotionally insecure about having the financial security to start a family. And so his, 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 his path to starting a family was about, could he provide financially for that family? Um, and I think that a lot of men w- would hold that, that, same, that same insecurity. Um, another man that we talked to that was actually an immigrant from, from another, another country um, comes from a culture where, where men are expected to be, to be breadwinners. So he was sent off to school internationally to, 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 to go and, and to make money for the family. Well, his sisters obviously were not given the same opportunities that he was to have education, which is a whole other another issue but but he felt that now being in the workforce he has to send money back home to to his family and so his primary responsibility is go make money and make enough money that you can support the family and and that's the role that you're going to play there isn't going to be an alternative for you um and so it it, it was quite interesting to hear I, I think some of the some of the, the the false perceptions that 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 started to break down in my mind were um we we associate the pursuit of power and, and the pursuit of status within the workplace as a uh, like a um, that's what you should be pursuing as a man specifically as a as a woman as well. But but this research was was on men obviously, and so um, uh, I'm I'm a valuable man if I pursue power and status in the workplace. And so what happens is these men as they're growing up and thinking about which which occupations to pursue even out of high school they're already limiting their choices to only the occupations that will give them power and status and financial security and so the the range of things that people considered tended to be like finance accounting engineering um maybe maybe some kind of med school uh lawyer uh things that that would directly lead to high paying salaries um and we heard multiple times from people saying like Oh, I was really interested in, you know, sound engineering for theater. But then I realized that there probably wasn't too much of a career in that. So I, so I didn't pursue that. Or another person that we interviewed saying, oh, I used to be a, a top tier uh, racket sport, um, like uh, like tennis or, or badminton or something like that. I used to be a, a top tier racket sport uh, player. But now ever since I started working here, I don't do that anymore <laughs> because it conflicts with my, with my career, my career ambitions. And so the, the, these men that that have that have chosen these careers that, that are that are for the most part high paying, like these are all people working in corporate jobs in companies that were larger than five thousand people, um, and so uh, all doing all, all on the the higher end of economic privilege for sure, um, no 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 doubt about that. And it seems that like they've all made choices to to to. to to set aside some kind of personal interest or personal ambition in place of uh, their their pursuit of, of, of financial security or some kind of power or status within the organization. And so sitting and going through these interviews and one interview lasts two hours and it would take me eight hours to, to break them down because I'm listening to things and I'm re-listening and re-listening and trying to hear the intonation in their voices and and you hear these emotions crack through and sometimes these men start start crying during these interviews. Um, cause it's the first time I've ever talked about these things and it really, it was really impactful. It, it made me sit back and think and go like, what the hell do I want out of life? <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem like a lot yeah. of these men are, are getting what they want, even though men seem to have all this privilege. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what I was took away from it.
0: What a great experience though. I mean, especially to go and talk to someone. That's, as you said, at the pinnacle of success, you know, they're potentially making upwards of seven figures. They've got a high status role in an organization and there's that constant insecurity, especially and the insecurity about money of all things. You're like, how could you work? Why would you worry about money? And, um, I, you know, I see that a lot in, I see it in a lot of my work with my clients, you know, I have clients that are, um, extremely, you know, personally wealthy, professionally successful, same kinds of things. Well, what a great gift to give yourself to be able to go and interview them and, and sort of, you know, project your future self down the road and say, Hey, it looks like all the money in the world isn't going to make me <laughs> super fulfilled, which everyone tells you is true, but it's until you actually see it and live it through the eyes of, of somebody else. It's difficult.
1: Totally. Yeah. And, and I would say that another recurring theme, um, and it was interesting because again, we had people that were on the younger spectrum people that were on the older spectrum and everything in between is that, um, for the people that were on the younger side of the spectrum there was always a perception of it will get better in the future and so all right I'm, I'm early 20s or mid-20s or whatever I'm just going to grind really really hard and then in my 30s once I get that you know whatever director role or, or VP BP ship or something then it will get better and then you talk to people that are in those VP ship roles <laughs> and, and they're like yeah you know what I've got a family I've got my I don't have any time for myself anymore but if I just keep on working really really hard you know at some point I'll get to the I'll get there and I'll be able to, you know, um, uh, one person talked about fantasizing about moving into a cabin in the woods somewhere with their partner and, and learning Italian and Italian cooking. Um, and uh, they perceive like that's going to be something that I'll do in the future. And then you talk to these people that that are either at or approaching retirement and, and uh, um, they're finally now starting to slow down, but it's almost like... You, you you've missed you, you've missed so much right um th- this story didn't necessarily come from our from our research but it's stuff that i've heard anecdotally in talking with 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 more senior men outside of the report of of you you, you try so so hard to overperform on 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 your your financial provider role and then you get to retirement and then you realize Oh, I'm divorced and I'm alienated from my kids, and I have this this big home, but I don't have anything. I don't have anyone to spend it with. Or I've sacrificed so many personal interests. My only personal interest now is is my career. And so even though I am retiring, I'm still uh, participating in that career uh, to to some degree to to keep my mind busy. Um, and I think that was a story that that, that we heard that, that I've heard anecdotally a lot and um that's a story that i think needs to be told more often um i think of the, the the elon musk interview uh this would be a few months ago now where he was uh tearfully talking about um you know flying in for his i think it was his brother-in-law's wedding or something like that um and uh or he was he was the best man i think and he's like i flew in that morning i did my best man stuff and i got back on a plane that night and i was back um at the Tesla factory, um, uh, working hard again, and he's like, he's like crying because clearly he's so overworked. And Elon Musk is this person that we put up on this pedestal as like the pinnacle of, of, of of manhood. He's changing the world. He's you know, uh, he's this millionaire, billionaire uh, person. Shouldn't we all want to be more like him? And clearly, he's having some kind of like emotional crisis that that we're simply not talking about. Um, a lot of the, the narrative that came out of that report was, was saying like what if he was a woman would we judge him more harshly for crying if he was a woman and say that that, that, that you know they can't handle it um, and, and I think that that like we're starting to get to the point now where, where men can't handle it <laughs> too no one can handle it it's not about whether women or, or men can, can handle it um, that's not the, the, the comment that, that I that I I want to make it's, it's just the fact that like none of us can handle it um, and, and we should we should acknowledge that well yeah that, I mean
0: that's so true but I <laughs> I mean hearing that though that the emotional piece like when you were talking this, this is a big this is a big area that I, I t- I've talked to a lot of guests about is the idea about the ability for men or women or whoever to show emotion at work and how much is allowed how much do we tolerate? What's the you know you said what's the um, the ideal worker ideal man? What's the ideal amount of emotion to put on display? and men are notoriously, you know we know we are terrible at having any kind of emotional range, generally speaking, especially in the workplace. It's like Robocop comes out and you just do your work and and um, take no prisoners. Did you get a chance to dig into any of that? in your research i know i know you've got these big themes you pulled out but in your you know you went in depth you got to listen to these interviews did you have a chance to talk about the emotional component of work
1: yeah so i would say that um i'm gonna make two comments on that one is about the research and one is just my own personal experience now being on on paternity leave um from our research i would say that um the men that we interviewed tend to have a, a certain, like a like a divider, a divider between what is acceptable at work and a divider uh, on the other side being what is not acceptable at work. And the things that w- would be considered unacceptable at work um, are really uh, personal issues, but I would call them human issues. Yes. <laughs> so uh, one man talked about Um, him and his wife having a miscarriage and like him not talking about that at work. Or he was very, um, he was very spiritual. He, he was, he was very committed to um, to his spirituality. uh, And that was something that he didn't necessarily talk about at work or another man that we interviewed who um, was going on and on and on about how his best friends were also his coworkers, which was a fantastic thing. and, And obviously that's great that, that you can, um, combine social with, with, with work as well. Um, and then when you're probably a bit deeper and he was talking about struggling now with, um, uh, with, with, with providing his children with the right kind of guidance given their stage of life. And he didn't know how much to give guidance versus how much to be hands off. And, and we asked him, it's like, do you talk to your, to your coworkers about that, that you're good friends with? And he's like, Oh no, like I, I don't. And so even even these individuals that, that, claim to have these really strong social relationships at work still put up a divider between what they do talk about and what what they what they don't talk about um but it, it was interesting that that when men did experience some kind of empathetic or vulnerable interaction at work that was incredibly impactful for them incredibly impactful and so <clears throat> we would ask the question who is your most inspirational leader or who is the leader that you enjoyed working for the most or or who, what, which leader would you want to emulate the most? And almost universally, when they talked about a leader, they would talk about a leader that, that showed some kind of emotional response to something. Um, one example that pops out to me is uh, a man was talking about a, a leader that they had um, who was is, who is quite a bit more senior than they were, they, they had grandchildren. And um, this, this leader started talking about their grandchild, their granddaughter, I believe it was, and became quite emotional in showing their love and and their, and their sort of uh, connection with this granddaughter. And for the man that we interviewed, he was like, I had never seen that side of that person. I never even realized that they felt that they had those emotions within them. <laughs> uh, but, but that even that one experience w- was so impactful for them because they're like, oh, now I'm close to this person. Now, now I understand them a bit better. Now I, can, I know that within this workplace, it's okay for me to show my own um, uh, empathy or vulnerability. Uh, and so when, when empathy and vulnerability did happen, um, however rare it might have been, it was almost universally this positive um, uh, connective tissue that brought people together. Um, and, and it gave permission to everyone else to also show those behaviors. Um, uh, so th- that that that's what came out of our out of our research I would say in relation to that, but then I think about me going on my paternity leave and the emotional roller coasters that, that i've that I've been uh, going through. I've never considered myself to be um, an angry person, but I would say that my default response to go to anger when you're frustrated about something to do with babies which babies. frustrating (laughs) they do do. (laughs) yeah uh and having to be like whoa like why am i so angry like like and really having to to deal with that and manage that and 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 understand how to how to hold back on that and and either how to be um empathetic or 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 uh maybe tolerant is is a is a a good word as well um of just like grin and grin and, and and bear it as opposed to um responding with anger or trying to find some kind of different way to respond to it that's sort of been on on, on like the, the, the tougher side but one of the biggest liberations that i felt is like i like cry all the time now <laughs> for like positive joyous reasons <laughs> uh and uh and that has been so incredibly liberating to just be like yes i can just like be happy and be overcome with that emotion and let that show through and it be a positive, happy thing. Um, Carolyn sent me a, a, a thank you package once the report launched. Cause obviously I'm on Pat leave. So she, she mailed it to me. Um, and she put a nice note in there. And then I called her yeah. right after that and I like blubbered on the line. Being, like you mean so much to me and all this. And, and like, it, it felt great. It felt great to be able to like show that emotion. Right. And so um, I, I've been fascinated with the, with the emotional changes that, 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 that you go through um, caring for such a small little individual and caregiving can be many different forms. My form is is with my daughter. Um, But uh, you know, if men did a little bit more of that, how would that impact how we work um, out in the workplace and and the empathy that we show there? Um, And that would be an incredibly interesting um, outcome from being more of a caregiver.
0: I think it's, that's a, such a good reflection, Eric. I mean, you've been at this for uh, a couple of months, as you say, on Patly, but you've been thinking about this and, and doing the research and talking to these men and having these experiences, but the emotional piece is huge. And I, I wonder if, you know, if, if men were to be more involved, um, let's say in, in traditional or in less traditional roles, you know, say doing more of the uh, caregiving type roles and not even at in home, but also in society, so more men doing things like working as teachers and working as nurses and things that, you know, many years ago were traditionally female roles that those kinds of, of jobs can can create more emotional connection and that might be part of it. But it's so true. It's so true that we as men, we love to use anger as the mask for any emotion. So we look at it and we're like, hey, I'm feeling sad. Well, I might as well just get totally pissed off and angry or hey, I'm frustrated. Oh, anger better be the good response. And, you know, part of it's programming, part of it's, you know, the way that, um, the way that we learn. But there is, I love your story because it's like, hey, there's, um, there's an antidote for this, which is, you know, spend a couple of months at home with your, with your young daughter and see the kinds of frustrations that allow emotion to actually flow. Um, that was certainly my experience as a parent. I didn't experience it um, as early on as you did. I was very much head down trying to provide, get things done. I was the, you know, the sole breadwinner. I was very young when my first daughter was born. And so I felt a huge burden just to provide. So it was like head down, get in the car, go to work, make money, pay the rent, all that. Um, It wasn't until later on that I kind of had my awakening where it's like, oh, hang on a second. Your kids need and your wife needs you as opposed to the money. Um, Yeah. And so it's an interesting revelation. So you, so let me ask you a little bit more about the, the friends thing, because you talked about how some of the people you talk to, they said, Oh, they have, they have male friends, a lot of them are their colleagues, or they have other male friends. You know, my experience has been that most of the friendships I've had until recently, there wasn't a lot of emotional content, like there's topics that are very safe, you can go talk about not even just like typical guy stuff like sports and beer, but you can talk about current events or politics or whatever, but there's a, there's a line, as you say, where it's like, no, I'm not going to talk about the miscarriage or I'm not going to talk about the fact that my wife and I are having marital challenges or that I don't really know how to care for my eight month old daughter or whatever. It's like, no, those are things that you just don't talk about. How, how, how much of that, like, did you come across men that had that had those kinds of friendships where they actually could talk about emotional stuff? And did you see any big differences?
1: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no. I think it's an interesting question. Um, I, I would say that that we that we, the men that we interviewed, ran the full gamut. I, I would say that there are some men that would claim, uh, you know, one or two very close friends that they've known for ages or um, se- several several years and they could be as as emotional and open with that person as they as they wanted to be there were some men that said i never see my friends anymore
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> i
1: work and i have family and friends are something that that is a, a a privilege to see you know once every month or two or something we'll make time for it um all the way up to you know the the the, the one man that we interviewed that said that he essentially works with all of his best friends and so he 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 sees them he sees them all the time, um, but yeah, I I I, I don't know. Um, I can't think of of specific uh, triggers or insights around the difference between men having uh, empathetic, vulnerable friendships versus men having non empathetic, non vulnerable, vulnerable friendships. I would say that um, in my own personal experience, that you know having a wife. Like Erin, and seeing the way that she interacts with with her circle of friends, and and being there sometimes as the only man if if the situation just happens to work out that way, um, and seeing the way that they have conversations versus the way that that, that men have conversations within friendships, it is incredibly different, um, and that's where I sort of like became you know. Awakened to this new world of 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 friendships because I didn't even necessarily realize that, that that there was there was like alternatives to it. Um, I think about a I think about growing up, uh, you know, like through high school and university and things like that. And when I needed to have sort of a more vulnerable, empathetic conversation, I tended to have those with women who were friends, um, and not as much with with the men that I was I was I was very close to. Um, I think though that I've made more of a conscious effort to just on my own to change that where like, I'll, I'll kind of like almost go out of my way now to, to have, um, open and honest conversations with, with the people that I'm closest to that are, that are men. Cause I think it's important. I, I think it's, I think it's, we're all going through stuff. Everyone's got their own, their own mental baggage that they need to, they just sort out. And, um, that was probably uh, at a more in a more macro sense, that was one of the biggest insights from our report is that a lot of the men that we interviewed said, this is the first time I've ever talked about these things before. Um, they, they just don't they don't talk to anyone about it. <laughs> they, all, they bottle it all up. <laughs> uh, and we think of um, uh, so where I work, we have women's initiatives, women's women's networks where, uh, women will get together and have their um, you know wine and cheese type socials um, where they're able to, to get together get together and talk about women in the workforce. and that's incredibly important, and obviously that should that should continue. Um, but we we have a perception that the workplace is innately a boys club. And I think that the, the the term of boys club is a is a misnomer because, yes, it is a boys club that is more easily to integrate into if you are male. But Boys Club does not, for by any stretch of the imagination, assume that men have some kind of like safety net of, uh, of emotional protection. It's actually, I would argue that it's the opposite of that. <laughs> the, the Boys Club is where you go to posture how awesome you are and, and make fun of those who aren't as awesome and, and encourage yourselves to, to, to push even more on becoming more awesome. It's not the place where you go to say, Hey, I'm really struggling or like, Hey, I can't handle this or, Hey, I need help on this thing. Um, and, uh, and we're, we're trying to do that or at least I'm trying to do that within, within Doblin and Deloitte is to have these, um, I call it the dudes of Doblin where just maybe four or five other men get together and we just be like, Hey, you know, what's going on? Like, like let's just have an open conversation here. Um, and it's not meant to, to reinforce any kind of boys club atmosphere or reinforce any kind of, uh, male privilege necessarily. It's more meant to be like the world is changing. We need to show up differently. How are we trying to show up differently? And what is it that we're struggling with? And was it, what is it that, that we, that we need to, uh, that we can share with each other? Um, that simply doesn't happen within friendships, within, uh, uh working situations. Um, and uh, I think it's something that we need to do more often.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm interested yeah. to hear more about the the dudes of Dublin thing. I mean, I, out outside of work, um, you know, I, I get involved in a lot of men's work, involved in men's groups um, locally and, and in, in um, other parts of the world as well. And it's one of the it's been one of the most transformative, if not the most transformative experience, is any time that you get men together to cut through the bullshit, the posturing, all the um, ego stuff, and actually have real conversations, you start to realize how similar our experiences are. And that, as you said earlier, that vulnerability creates closeness. And what most men are looking for is that closeness. In, in the workplace, I, I, I'm with you. Like, it's not about having, you know, the men's network it's about just having something like the dudes of Doblin where men can get together uh, and cut through the bullshit and talk about the struggles that they're having or the successes they're having and challenge each other or whatever it is without getting into that masculinity contest of like, Hey, how many hours did you work or how many beers did you put down on the weekend or whatever it might be. So when you, how long is this, how long has your dudes of Doblin thing been going on? Obviously it's hard to do now, I guess if you're
1: (laughs) on. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I don't know if if the, the the dudes at Doblin are 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 still doing it while I'm on pat leave. Maybe they are, um, but uh, we've done I want to say four four meetings. Initially, they started because we were finalizing the insights in our Design of Everyday Men report, and I wanted to test these insights with a, with a like a almost like a focus group of men to say, does this resonate, or are we are you guys like this makes no sense at all. Um, And so it began that way to say, this is what we think the experience of men is at work right now. What do you think? And that was a really, a really great conversation because um, it, uh, it was this, it was this really interesting experience where, where these men come into this room um, in a business context um, uh, to do what they think is give feedback on a piece of work. And that would be not dissimilar from whether it's a financial services report or a gender diversity report. With like, um, and so initially they, they all have their like, you know, critique hat on and they're all sitting back in their chair. They'd be like, Well, I, I would word it this way, or I would da you know, Are the, are these me see mutually exclusive like I can office?
0: picture it now.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then and then within like ten minutes, they're like, Oh, this is about us. Like like this this is about like me as an individual and my experience this isn't um and and that's that's what's been super impactful with this report as well I think is that specifically for 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 senior male leaders is that we tended to to approach gender diversity and inclusion as um like uh like the problem of someone else that I need to be empathetic towards uh and so as a senior male leader and so um, it tends to be externalized from your own personal experience, and so you get to sort of treat these issues as almost arm's length. Um, and And your job is to be an ally and supporter and championing, and not and not make that situation worse and try to improve it. Um, but the, the insights that we have here in the report are not arm's length; they are they are right there in your face. They are they are about you, and that's almost been when we, when we present to senior executives. That's sort of been the reaction is that you. You maybe have a half an hour of their time, let's say, and the first ten minutes is like this: like sit back, ready to critique. And then there's like this this switch where they decide whether they're going to share something personal or they're going to just try to um, like be a champion, a champion and supporter, um, which is also good. Um, but for the people that that flip, that switch flips they kind of like get a little bit silent and, and they start to share these really personal things about their experience um, uh, that uh, that I don't know if they've ever been invited to share in that way in the workplace before. And Probably so, not. <laughs> yeah. And so when I think of, of Dudes of Doblin, um, that initial meeting was more about the report. But since then, it's just been like, let's just get together and talk about how you're feeling on stuff like it's not even necessarily about gender anymore. It's just about like, like, let's just chat. What's going on? Like, how can I, how can I help you? How can you help me? Uh, And I've had some really, really awesome conversations of, uh, that that have come out of that.
0: It's a, I love, I love the idea of it. I mean, years ago when I I was working for um, the utility company out in, in British Columbia and it was, there was a a whole bunch of initiatives happening with the women's network. And I remember it was, I was working in, um, in this key key account management group. So a group of mostly salespeople. And I, one of the, one of the senior leaders was like, well, you know, where's the, where's the men's club? You we didn't have a men's, a men's network. And I kind of wonder if part of him was asking like, Hey, I, I kind of, like to have a safe place to actually have a conversation (laughs) and it was just masked as the typical like you know we need to get together as men and blah blah it was but it's it's so funny that that um that that's been you know the same similar experience for you but when you actually create it which um kudos to you for actually having the courage to to make that happen
1: uh, I, 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 yeah. I will, so I, I will caveat really quickly on, on the, the, the courage side of things is that Dudes of Doblin would not exist if it wasn't for very strong encouragement and support from, from my team members Minya and Haley, um, And so there was this, this funny dynamic that was happening is that, um, I mean, I was the manager on the team, so I, I was in and out of the working room uh, doing different things and Minya and Haley tended to be the two that were in the working room um, pretty consistently doing analysis and and we'd have different men throughout the around the floor either from Dublin or not from Dublin, from the broader Deloitte they would kind of like stop in and be like hey so 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 how's the report going and they would like kind of talk to Haley and Minya almost as this like 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 behind the scenes you know getting to, and like getting to learn a little bit and share a little bit of themselves and then you know when I come back around you know people scatter kind of thing um and, and it was this really interesting dynamic where Haley and Minya would be like like anonymously, like they obviously want to protect people's privacy. So they'd be like, Hey, like this person dropped by, and this is the kind of stuff that they're talking about. Um, and I'd be like, well, why, why the hell (laughs) aren't we as men talking about this? Like, like, uh, and so it was actually Haley, uh, um, Minya and Haley that, uh, that were, that were like, yeah, do that. Definitely do that. And I think that that permission, um, from, uh, I mean, two female voices, they're obviously not they're representing everyone in the organization, but um, that made it much more um, enabled. Uh, otherwise, if I would have like unilaterally decided there was a Dudes of Doblin that needed to exist without their buy-in, I think that would have been more difficult. So um, it's it's
0: it's great that you had you know had two of your co-workers, uh, female co-workers push you to start the, the Dudes of Doblin group. I love that. I love that story though. Like you've got these guys coming in and they're, they so badly want to share, but they're not quite sure how to say like, Hey, can you just listen to me for a minute? I want to tell you about something and see how that feels for me. Um, And you, and you know, they provided that space. So this report has been um, almost as a catalyst to start the conversation at Deloitte. Um, Have you obviously, you know, in, in doing the report, what have, what have you noticed change? If anything, even inside just, the Doblin group.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would say that, um, uh, like senior male leaders, um, wanting to build more empathetic relationships, I, I think. So, so, so for instance, um, uh, a new leader coming in, uh, and and trying to 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 lead a part of Dublin, and trying to build some of that uh, that um, that like reputation uh, to be seen as, as a as a as a strong leader, um, and 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 wanting to to explore that leadership more through an empathetic lens as, as opposed to like a just like I'm super smart, listen to me type lens. Um, I would say that that I definitely saw some some changes in that respect, and wanting to have those conversations. Um, but one, one example I'll talk about outside of, of Dublin actually, which I thought was really great was, so we presented to the senior executive team at Deloitte, which included the CEO and, um, and all the, the direct reports. And um, our, uh, our, our CEO put out a holiday message, a holiday video um, to Deloitte being like, hey, enjoy your holiday, things like that. Um, and this was after he had seen our, our, our report. And I, I took note of the fact that he spent a, a large portion of his video Talking specifically about the time off he was going to take with his family and how much he valued the fact that all of his kids and um, I don't know if, if there was grandkids or, or spouses to those kids, but like this whole family would be in one house at the same time and how much he valued that. And he said, like, we'd love to get together as a family um, and, and watch, and watch uh, Netflix together, watch movies together. And he's like, I'm a big rom-com guy, so I love to sit down and watch rom-coms. <laughs> Um, and he's like, I hope everyone takes time off over the break to to really, you know, reentrench w- w- with the people that are important to you and your family. And that was that was launched just just before the holidays, um, just like internally at Deloitte. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I've heard our leaders talk like that before. To to, I mean, the the message of like, yeah, keep pushing revenue, keep keep growing. Obviously, that that's like as a leader, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Um, but then to also spend such a large portion of that video talking about something as, as personal as family and how much you value that. And then and then kind of openly admitting that you like rom-coms, which is like, you know, for a lot of men would seem risky, right? <laughs> to talk yeah, about it's a big that.
0: emotional edge to talk about something risky. Yeah.
1: I know, liking a romantic comedy. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so it's, it's seeping in for sure. Uh, and, and I would say that, that when we present the findings to senior male leaders and we talk about the insights that are in there and, and the always on, always available workplace culture being like a key barrier to, to any individual um, uh, wanting to show up more as their whole self at work and, and, and bring more of their whole self to work when being always on, always available is such a, such a high demand of, 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 of your whole being, right? Well, when we present that to senior male leaders, almost universally they're like, yeah, I know. Like, like, that's how I feel. Like, like I agree with you. This is not new information to me. This is stuff that I already know, but what do we do about it? And, and our goal is, is just to have that be a conversation that is happening. Um, yeah. and then together we're, 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 we're doing things to, to experiment on new ways of working, uh, to move forward in a more iterative way, as opposed to say, this is the change that needs to happen. We're, we're trying to do it more iteratively.
0: Well, and it, I think it's, it's probably going to be the more successful way to do it. You know, if, you know you're, well, you're a practitioner of human-centered design, so you know the way that uh, we work as humans and how change tends to manifest itself. I think it's a, it's a, it's a really good first step, and a, it's a giant step forward because I, I, I believe you referenced her research. I've talked about her research on this podcast. A woman called Jennifer Berdahl out of UBC she wrote a a paper about the workplace as a masculinity contest. And I'm sure you came across it in your research, but part of it was the same phenomenon you just talked about, which is there's this bias that happens in workplaces that are, let's say masculine dominant, which is kind of take no prisoners and uh, work long hours and, you know, don't show any weakness, is that people, especially men, they think that everybody else likes that so they don't want to speak up. It's a bit like the emperor's not wearing any clothes. You know, no one wants, no one wants to say it because they'll be seen as foolish. But as soon as you start the conversation and, and as this as this research does, it opens the door for men to go, yeah, that actually is my experience. I don't like being on all the time. I don't like being emotionally void at work. I don't like having to feel like I'm competing all the time with my peers to get the next VP role or executive role. And so it, it although it might feel like it's just information, you're giving permission um, for men and women, whoever else, to actually have the conversation. And yeah. that, I think is going to step or uh, create a huge step forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think that, that that's where that's where we want it to. Um, what 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 we what we didn't want to happen is for this to be like. Um, uh, let me use an example here of like. Uh, uh, buying everyone in the company new cell phones or something like that where the ceo goes uh what's the cost yeah okay okay signed boom and then yep. move on to the next thing right like that's not what we wanted we, we wanted this to be like like uh, uh, an internalized thing um uh, a way of being a way of working that is more foundational and, and i think that that it is it is foundational like it's more than just workplaces it, it's about how how men show up in in society overall how we collectively define masculinity overall how we show up in our families overall when i talked about that 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 venn diagram at the beginning of the ideal worker versus um, the ideal man in society versus the ideal um like father or, or family man um i think it's actually that that la- that sets that third bubble that that's that's causing change right now it's the ideal family man because um uh Feminism, through through decades of, of of fighting and pushing, has 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 taken so many amazing strides forward, and 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 now we're, we're like <laughs> several decades later, realizing that like, oh, like we as men need need to like change along with this. It's not just about empowering it; it's about changing. Um, and and the awesome benefit of that is that we get to find something different and, and more fulfilling and, and more. And more happy for ourselves as well. Being the ideal worker and being the ideal man of masculinity, a man in society, um, is uh, is can be limiting. It can be very difficult to achieve that. And I think that what what has happened is that when when men can't achieve that ideal man in society or that ideal worker um, uh, state, they feel like failures. And and when they feel like failures, they 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 they, they lash out through self-harm like the suicide rate is far higher for men than it is for women um they lash out through violence towards others um and so uh like we think of sort of the the like the the far right version of gender equality is that like men are disadvantaged and it's feminism that's causing men's disadvantage and so men need to fight back against feminism i think that's that's totally false it's actually the complete opposite it's that men are feeling like they can't be the ideal worker and the ideal man in society because those definitions are wrong. And if we just actually participated in feminism and fought for our own change as well, we would realize there's a whole better way for us to show up. Um, There was one study that I looked at about millennial men and it found that um, men that were in in relationships, uh, the ones that... Um, claim to most equally share the outside of work responsib- responsibilities with their spouse. that took on the most caregiving, that took on the most um, uh, supporting and household management, along with their spouse together, claim to be the happiest. And so, uh, you know, if you are taking on more than your fair share of financial providing at the expense of these other roles, you might actually be less happy as a result of that. And you might be more happy if you actually lean into these, these, these new roles that are, they're becoming accessible to men because women are, are, are taking up new roles as well, um, in the workplace. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's a positive news story for sure. It's, it's a good observation. I mean, I notice that on a
0: weekly basis and in weeks where workload is super heavy for me and I'm doing less on the home front, I'm making literally making more money, and feeling far less fulfilled and happy. So the research yeah. is, is certainly reinforcing my own experience around that. And, and weeks where, you know, I'm I, it's a slower week, um, you know, certainly big insecurity, cause I'm like, oh, I'm not making as much money. But I walk out of the week going, oh, I'm way happier. I got to hang out with my girls for a couple of days. And I was there when they woke up and I was there when they went to bed and I was there when I got yeah. home from school and uh, I got to make a meal and all those things. They do, I believe, certainly they do add to more happiness. The challenge is I think it's hard for men to either see that because they're not trying it out or they're afraid to admit it um, because that is a sign of weakness, which we're not supposed to show in this ideal man <laughs> scenario.
1: Totally, totally. And I think it, like um, uh, it I've always been interested in things like uh, like top 40 under 40 lists or top 30 under 30 or something like that because we, like, you know, as someone that works in the corporate world, you know, you, you always wanna be showing up on these these, these leadership lists, right? Um, and uh, uh, almost unanimously, or like whether someone's doing like, like, a, like a, a speech at a graduation or, or someone's being recognized by their alma mater or something like that, all these ways that we assign like, like social status to, to behaviors, almost universally, the status is assigned to your success as a career person, right? And so a top 40 under 40 person is someone that succeeded really, really well in their organization. Um, uh, Someone that gives the keynote speech at a graduation is someone that has done really, really well in their, in their career. Uh, And so we we continuously assign social status to, to specifically someone's career aspirations. And I think that, that it's a false front. I think that it's, that it's, that it's, that that does not necessarily align with, 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 with happiness. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have career aspirations or we shouldn't strive to be CEOs. I think that that we should still do that and we should know that it's going to take a commitment to achieve that. But I think that we need to be realistic of what those trade-offs are and we need to be more realistic about what is it that you want out of life? Do you want um, that kind of lifestyle? If you do great, go for it. If you want a different lifestyle um, that maybe more closely correlates to, to, to overall fulfillment and happiness, um, I think we need to be more willing to, to to make that choice. And in an ideal world, we work in workplaces where you can have both. I don't know if that's gonna be something that happens. Maybe it will be. Um, I think we're moving that direction, uh, certainly within Deloitte and, and maybe some other organizations as well. Um, but um, yeah, I think we, we as men need to be more conscious of what those trade-offs are and, and what, those, what, what the, the realities of those outcomes are.
0: That's a. I mean, even, even just knowing that there's a trade-off, I think is a big one because the narrative is that you talked about. It's like, there's this ideal man in society, ideal man at work, ideal man at home. It's a terrible ideal because nobody ends up happy. Like the man's not happy because he's trying to live up to this ideal. That's, that's impossible and totally unfulfilling. Women aren't happy because it's, you know, forcing men to do things that are going to take away from their time with you know, supporting them or family or whatever else it might be. And workplaces aren't super happy because the cultures are terrible and nobody wants to work in them. So it's like a lose, lose. And part of it is understanding that this is the trade-off that we're choosing to make, whether it's individually uh, within a team or corporately, like Mm -hmm. these trade-offs are happening all the time. But I think it's a pretty good question to start with, which is what do you want to get out of life? And, you know, certainly you're fortunate to have, been able to do this research with your colleagues um, at an, you know, let's say a, a midpoint or, an, or let's say an earlier ish point in your career where you can go, well, what do I actually want to get out of life and look at the choices that you've been able to make that are different, right? Mm-hmm. Here you are at home reported, recording a podcast, your daughter's, um, you know, sleeping in the, in the next room mm-hmm. and you're, you're doing what you want to be doing. You're living the way that you want to be living in the world. So it's a great embodiment of this idea of we've got to get beyond just sponsorship and support and actually do something different
1: yeah yeah and i think that like the other side of that story is is my wife's at work right now and she's working a fulfilling day uh uh doing what, what she enjoys in the workplace and when she comes home today there's going to be dinner on the table ready for her and <laughs> Yeah, yeah so she'll, she'll get her hour or two with Elon to to bond, and then Elon will, will go to sleep, and then um, you know we'll have our social time together, and then the the day starts tomorrow. And so um, I think that's the that's the that's like the the win win of this is that the more men make these choices, the more women are able to make um, uh, other choices as well, uh, um, and so it, it it works for everyone, I think. Yeah, I think it.
0: it it works in a big way. And what I, what I love about the research is it is the start of a conversation. What I love about your story is it's action focused. So you're, you know, you last night said you were out speaking at an event. Wonderful. You know, that's a big trade off for you because you're also at home all day with your daughter, taking care of the, of the household as it were, but you're making it work and you're choosing to do things differently. And I, I think it's an important conversation for men to be having about sponsoring, supporting women and gender equality. Yes, good, do it. And there's also gonna be some behavioral changes that we can take on as well. And guess what? Your research points to the fact that people are gonna be a lot happier. (laughs) It's not like this is like, oh, you know, men, time time to take your licks. You're gonna gonna have to be at home more and do things you don't wanna do, like take care of children.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, it's we that that's one that's one of the uh, a big difficulty that I've that I've faced um, is the constant narrative around being at a home with a child as being this kind of sacrifice. And I just couldn't disagree more. Um, uh, e- even even terms like parental leave, like I'm leaving to go do something different or I'm engaging in unpaid work I, I I'm engaging in uh like something that is lesser for some reason or um uh, like there's there's like this game of like one one upmanship um around uh caring for for a child as well I find sometimes where it's like like uh like I have one child now and everyone everyone's always like oh well wait till you have two children then it gets really really bad or like she started walking a couple days ago. Oh, well now hide everything off the, off the um, tables. Cause she's going to be walking everywhere. Like it's always like this warning that things going to get worse or like, like like your life's going to fall apart. And like, I'm not, not going to say that it's all sunshine and roses, but it's not. But like at the same time, like it is incredibly fulfilling, incredibly. Like I got home last night from my, from this panel And it was too late to see Elin because she was already in bed. And all I wanted to do was wake her up and hang out with her. Like, and that's, that is like the, the most rewarding part of this. And, um, I think that for some reason, we always want to talk down this work of caregiving and and think of it as some sort of like deviation from our true path in life. And I don't know, I, I don't agree with that. And I think that, um, like you know as a man i'm definitely late to the game i think women have probably known this for quite some time (laughs) and so uh i'm probably saying a lot of stuff that some women are like yeah you know whatever man like we've been saying this forever and now you're finally getting to the game but um uh i i would applaud these women for for leading the way and and they are the ones that are setting the examples that we should be following they're the ones that we should be learning from um they're you know they're amazing powerful uh individuals that that men are eons behind in some in some instances as well uh, yeah
0: like they actually get together with their friends and talk about real things
1: they don't turn the tv on <laughs> my wife and her friend over they did turn the tv on and i was like you're just gonna talk for two hours
0: <laughs> you do something else yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah no i mean it's a that's a that's a good a really good um reflection too. to, to to acknowledge that this is not this is not new information. It's just, um, there's a lot of things that I think we're a little bit late to the game at, but hey, we're in the game. Um, and I think, you know, Eric, you're in the game in, in a huge way because you, along with your colleagues, have forged a great path with this research. I have not come across research that is so focused around this one topic of really deeply understanding the reality of men at work, uh, in society, as as caregivers, as parents, as husbands, as people taking care of their aging parents, as well, there's a lot here, uh, and. I'm so grateful that you were able to make time and that Evelyn's nap lasted long enough for us to have this conversation
1: I before we close the interview. Right now.
0: <laughs> oh, she's just about to wake up. Well, she, she's, uh,
1: she's looking up at the ceiling right now on my, on my baby monitor. So this is <laughs>
0: timing. <laughs> so then where, uh, before you have to physically leave, uh, I'm going to include all your info in the show notes and the report and all that, but where can people go to find out more about you, about the report? Um, and just the, the work that you're doing in general?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the Design of Everyday Men report is hosted on the Deloitte Insights platform. And so that's a global platform for Deloitte's thought leadership. And so if you just go into Google and search Deloitte Insights, the Design of Everyday Men, um, you'll see the synopsis pop up there and then you can access the, the PDF. Um, uh, personally, outside of Deloitte, I, I also have a blog called Mate Modern, M-A-T-E-Modern.com. Um, and I'll also do some commentary on that blog at some point on the design of everyday Men report, share a bit more of my personal story around it. Um, and also on that blog, I, I uh, just talk about some of the experiences and, and thoughts that I have as a, as a man going through this evolving maleness, I call it. Um, and uh, so I encourage you to go check out that. Um, and uh, if you want to see awesome videos of a little baby, that's learning all the new things that a little baby learns, um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at ArthurL24, A A-R-T-H-R-E-L-L, 24 A-R-T-H-R-E-L-L-24.
0: All right. Uh, it's a great feed, by the way. You're getting like live action from a, a father taking care of his young daughter. It's, it's a different set of eyes. <laughs> yeah. Eric, thank you for being on the cast. Thank you for the research. And thank you for being an embodiment of this evolving maleness, as you call it, and um, I wish we had more time. You better go take care of your daughter. And um All right. That is a wrap on episode number 12 of the Men at Work podcast. As you can hear, Eric is doing some amazing work out there in the world. I'm going to link up all of his information in the show notes so you can go take a look at the report, have a look at his research and learn more about this great man. If you enjoyed this episode, or any other episode of the Men at Work podcast, please give me a like. And if you have the time, I would sure appreciate you giving me a rating and a review on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's a wrap. And we'll talk to you all next week for episode number 13.